Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring an interview with Oscar-nominated editor Lindsay Klingman as we discuss her work on the Best Picture winner of 1975, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the film which won Jack Nicholson his Academy Award for Best Actor. We'll also discuss her work on the Oscar-winning Vietnam War documentary, Hearts and Minds, along with her work with the producer of the film, Burt Schneider, who is responsible for some of the best films of the 1970s, including The Last Picture Show, Five Easy Pieces, and The King of Marvin Gardens. We'll also discuss her work as an editor with other acclaimed directors, such as Danny DeVito, Robert Redford, and her other work with Milos Forman, Man on the Moon. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at jogroad, Instagram at jogroadproductions, Facebook jogroadproductions, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join Oscar-nominated editor Lindsay Klingman as she discusses her earlier work in documentary features. You've worked on a lot of documentaries at the beginning of your career and up until now. Uh, has it been your experience where directors had outlines or scripts, oh, no. or were you just working from the, the raw material? The films I worked with, there was no script. There was an idea, and life unfolded. Well, I worked on one on civil rights, and they didn't know what was going to happen in certain situations. They just started filming. You know, that kind of thing. And about Vietnam, when I worked on films during the war about Vietnam, everything concerning Vietnam was an option. For instance, there were cameras there 24 hours a day. Every network had cameramen in the war, at the war, filming with the soldiers, filming everything. Destroyed villages, refugee camps, everything. And we could use anything from that. We could use anything from around the world. People were always sending us footage. So the, the options were enormous and that kind of thing. And, you know, when you have that many sources, in addition to uh, all the films had people shooting for the film, yeah. um, you know, you have a lot of options. They take a long time. Did the directors ever sort of start with kind of a general narrative idea, or were you really sort of at the force of constructing how the whole arc of the movie would be? Well, um, there were two films that were in over a year in a cutting room, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, which, you know, when you believe in your project and you think it could have impact and you think you're on the right side is something you don't mind doing at all, even when you're paid nothing. <laughs> and no, you know, it wasn't financial, God knows. But um, the, the, it, it tended to also be very involved, with, of course, with the director. We were finding the film and the footage, all of us. Well, let's talk a little bit about Hearts and Minds, uh, Peter Davis on that film. Yeah. Uh, what were some of your initial conversations with him about how he... So well, it's it, all right. Hearts and Minds started out to be a film about Dan Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, and it expanded clearly. Um, but I, they shot whatever they thought was of interest or relevant in both Vietnam and the United States. And when I say they, it was Peter Davis, uh, Richard Pierce, the cinematographer. Uh, Tom Cohn, the sound guy, and both Richard and Tom 
were also associate producers, and they came up with things to shoot. And they went all over doing this. And then after the year was up, um, they hired uh, they got uh, they hired an editor, but I didn't know that. And I called Peter Davis because I had done in the year of the pig, which was a film that was nominated for an Academy Award also in best documentary and was about the history of Vietnam. So I called Peter Davis up and I said, I'm Lindsay Klingman and I worked on Year of the Pig and you should hire me to cut your film. I just heard about it. Now Peter, what Peter would do is he'd go through transcripts of interviews and, you know, mark things that he liked. Yeah. But we also would pull things we thought were of interest emotionally or things that Peter might not have uh, found from the transcript. And uh, so our first cut was like two days long. You know, it took four months to look wow. at dailies and everything else we had. And um, the real, the first real cut was I think six hours long and very painful. Um, and Bert Schneider, who had produced some of the greatest films of the 70s, the Last Picture Show, Five Easy Pieces. Um, uh, King of Marvin Gardens. King of Marvin Gardens. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just amazing movies. So he was a charismatic, beautiful-looking man with penetrating blue eyes who could stare anybody down. And he was very politically committed. And he wanted to do a film on Dan Ellsberg. And the film, and so he got Peter Davis involved. And the film expanded. The more they talked, the more they both had visions, the more life went on to a film about the American attitude toward the war and the Pentagon Papers and Dan and all this stuff. And Bert had made a film, he had given Dennis Hopper money from, they had, uh, he made some money from the monkeys. And he gave Dennis Hopper some money to go to New Orleans and film a little bit. And they filmed this cemetery scene where everybody was kind of stoned and everything. But Bert looked at the dailies and he said, you know, this is a mess, but I think yeah. you have something going. That was Easy Rider. Yeah. And that was Easy Rider. <laughs> and that blew Hollywood away, of course, because it was made by young people. They were young at the time. And young people flocked to see it. And they were giving us Troy Donahue, you know, on the beach kind of movies. And suddenly... Easy Rider. So Bert got an eight-picture deal with Columbia Pictures, and he didn't have to tell them anything about the film as long as it was under a million dollars. So that's what happened. And this was number eight. They had no idea they were getting a, um, a film, a documentary against the war, and they were horrified when they found out. I believe they refused to distribute it at all. Well, they what happened was they saw it uh, about a week, sometime just before the Cannes Film Festival, and they saw it at a screening uh, at, at Burt's building, BBS, and we watched them all gather in the, in the parking lot after. It was like a circle of men in business suits, like eight of them, not happy, kind of posturing. And, for an hour. Then we went to Cannes with the film, and I was in the projection booth just before we started screening it. Yeah. And um, somebody from Columbia Pictures walked in and pulled the film down from the 
projector and cut out the Columbia logo. From right from the film, they cut the logo. Yeah, they wow. cut the logo. So that was something. But they were willing to sell it for a million dollars. And Bert had been a counselor at a camp that Henry Jaglum went to. And they were friends ever after. And Henry bought the film from Columbia and he distributed it. So that's what happened. What's, uh, I was just curious, what were sort of your later experiences with Bert Schneider? Um, I've always wondered kind of why he never, you know, continued having... Well, he had a couple problems. One was, uh, his best friends were like Huey Newton and Abby Hoffman, two counterculture heroes, but also uh, uh, Abby was great. But um, he was, uh, Bert really liked drugs, really was into it too heavily into drugs, uh, a lot of coke. And he got very paranoid and he got very litigious. He started suing everybody. He, he uh, eventually cut off a lot of friendships. He, um, he was in bad shape for about 20, 30 years. So he sort of isolated himself. He isolated himself a great deal, yeah. And uh, I mean, I saw him intermittently. We were kind of friendly. And he was still loaded as he was. He could charm, charm me completely, anybody. And he had wonderful stories of Hollywood, wonderful stories. You know, he was fun to be with, but he was always stoned. And it broke my heart. It just broke everybody's heart. And eventually, everybody, he didn't want anybody around who loved him. Wow. That's yeah. very sad. That that's it's so very sad. He had such a successful career there in the 70s, really was a big proponent yeah. of a lot of people's careers, yeah. Jack Nicholson. And well, Peter and after for a while, too, yeah. for a while, but he was a little lost then. He got a little lost. His brothers, both his brothers died, the one older and the one younger, which is really weird. And they were both fairly young. And then, of course, Huey died and Abby died. But he never had any sort of desire to get back into movies at any point? Or was that well, he made a couple more movies that were not good. Yeah. Terry Malick was one of his movies. Oh, Days of Heaven, I think. Yeah, I think so. Produced, yeah. First film. Huh. No, second film for Terry. But um, he was involved, you know, he did a couple of films that weren't really worthy. And uh, he got into lawsuits. It was just nuts. I don't know that much about what he did because I, you know, I would not talk to him for years, and then we'd have a meal or something. Yeah, I know it's interesting. There's a lot of mystery behind him in a way. He sort of became so elusive. He was so wonderful when he was uh, in his prime. A glorious man. Always wonderful to me. Yeah, I spoke to uh, Henry Jaglum, and he was. Uh, oh, did you? He kept in touch with him until the later part of his life. So they were. Oh, did he? Yeah, they were pretty close. They were close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Henry was his guy. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, uh, you know, some of your director collaborations worked on multiple films with so many directors. Uh, first, Milos Forman, which started on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, so working with him, did that? evolve or was it always sort of the same way of working from film no to film? no it was different um, I, I mean it was the first film I did after after hearts and minds after hearts and minds I didn't want to do any more documentaries it just 
emotionally the most searing, painful moment in someone's life is yeah. the best cinema. And it, it kind of, I felt like we were violated. People didn't understand the power of the camera at that time. They were naive about it. And I, I, it sort of bothered me, and I felt so close to everyone in it. You know, you, you work on something a long time, you know these people. They may not know you, <laughs> but I know them, and I care about them very much. So I, I had some problems, and I wanted to do fiction film where someone got paid a lot of money to expose their emotions. And it was very difficult. A lot of uh, producers and directors would say, well, you don't really understand drama because you've been working on documentaries and I'm like wait a minute in documentaries we have to construct the drama yeah. we have no to make play. it yeah. we have no screenplay we have no beginning or end we have to figure it out it evolves and so we have a very strong uh, story sense or the film isn't going to work Michael Douglas who had been his neighbor called up called him up and said do you know any cheap editors <laughs> I can get to work on this film I'm doing in San Francisco so that's how I got the job. Wow. And I went up there, and they had come back from Oregon and uh, uh, started cutting. Richard Shu was the first editor. And I came in and I cut a lot of the, um, the doctor's discussions, which were ad-libbed, so they were kind of documentary, and the basketball game was kind of documentary. But then I got other scenes to cut, yeah. fiction. And Milos would stay primarily in Richard's room, but he'd come into my room. And Sheldon Kahn also was an editor on it, and he would go into Sheldon's room. So multiple editors were working on it Three editors. And Milos would park in Richard's room, but he'd come in suddenly into, other into our rooms, each of our rooms, and, uh, you know, expect to see something yeah. new and hopefully good. But, he, you know, he was... He was, I was so thrilled, oh my God. He was, I loved his films. I'd seen all the Czech films and Taking Off was just one of my favorite films. And I actually thought, oh, maybe I should write the editor of that film. It was so well cut. It just went on and on like that. And uh, so I was really excited and, and he taught me a lot. He taught me a lot. He. Um, I mean, I always hear his voice when I'm cutting something. Oh no, that doesn't work. Or, you know, I mean, add two frames, two frames, this will help. You know, stuff like that. And, um, uh, but he would get very upset. I, I believe that he loved editing and he was very involved in the editing of every film he's ever done. And I believe that actually he shot so he could cut. Yeah. He liked to cut. Sort of cut in the camera, in a way? Never. No. He gave oh, okay. you options, options, ah. options. So you'd sit in a cutting room, with, and there were like a million ways to go. The over-the-shoulder, the, the close-up, the two-shot, the wide shot, the her point of view, his point of view. You know, a lot of different shots. And that was fantastic. It took longer, of course, to yeah. do. 
because you wanted to try everything. But I was kind of like that. I was into that trying everything. Was he very attached to the screenplay itself, or was he open to sort of finding different? He ways was to do it? open to being it being the best film it could be in every, almost every film I worked with him on. Um, no, he would take things out easily. What was your impression of watching some of that footage? Because Jack Nicholson's performance, I mean, even to today, it's a legendary... Uh... Yeah, I was thinking of Bert, who, like, I was on the film like a week, and he called me up and he said, so is this Jack's Academy Award? <laughs> I said, yeah, because <laughs> I loved the book. I, I would pinch myself every day. You know, that I was yeah. doing it. I was no, working was with Milos Foreman on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh my God, with Jack Nicholson. Oh my God. Yeah. Because it was so great. Uh, the, uh, the final scene of the movie, I always think about, you know, with, uh, you know, smothering Jack Nicholson after he's had the lobotomy and everything. Uh, constructing that scene, I mean, did you ever think of it like this will have like a real emotional power over the audience at all? Well, of course. Yeah. Of course. One day, Milos came in and decided uh, to, I, I'm not sure, I don't remember if I did the smothering stuff, but for, the Indian picks up the, uh, oh, the water, the water yeah. and goes to the window and breaks the window. And that and music it, comes up. Well, the so music great. didn't come up then. Oh, really? Uh. No, we were cutting. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys were thinking about putting the music in. Yeah. Was that always the intention? To put music yeah, in? Yeah, to put oh, the yeah. music in there. Yeah. But um, Emilius had a lot of reactions from the different actors. And so we pulled a lot of reactions and started fooling around with them, with the different reactions and trying this first, that second, then the Indian. And... Finally, Miller said, that's it. The film is going to work. Don't touch it. And then we went back to the rest of the movie. Yeah. But it was an amazing experience. Yeah, I remember those reactions. Uh, Christopher Lloyd, like, jumps up and, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was really, but he left the, I mean, I don't like to toot my own horn, but I did that final. Uh, Order of shots. Yeah, no, I saw that uh, in front of an audience recently at a film festival. Wow, it's just you know the first time I ever saw it in a theater, and uh, it's a good you know, film. People were cheering at the end when he throws the. Uh, yeah, and you know what happened, which was pretty wild, is the this was in the days of film. Yeah. And the last shot of the Indian running off was all one shot, and it was shot for this very purpose for the credits and. And they lost the negative. They lost the negative. So they had to take make a dupe off our work picture, which was used. Bad quality. Not, uh, I mean, it wasn't bad quality initially, but after, you know, yeah. nine months in a cutting room, it was not so clean. It was scratched. It was, you know, and, and there was less uh, technical help in those days for this kind of thing. Yeah. So you'd see the grain immediately, and, and there were some splices, I think. And uh, but they finally, when digital came along, they fixed that. Yeah. The other movie uh, you worked on with Milos Forman, which I'm a big fan of, is Man on the Moon. Yeah. It's the story of Andy Kaufman. Now here's a really funny, weird thing. Andy Kaufman grew up with my brothers. Really? I knew him. You knew him personally. Yeah. <laughs> 
so from when he was he a little as, kid. <laughs> so was he as eccentric yeah. as people make him out to yeah. be? Yeah, uh, he was. He was eccentric, definitely. Yeah, no, he was so experimental in what he was doing. He was almost like testing an audience to see how they would react. Yeah, to him doing a something. lot of it, I think, was sort of anger-based, rage-based, mm. the way he would... Like that Tony Clifton character. Yeah, but also there. he would do things like, all right, already, what is, what's the point here, you know? And then he would, I don't know, put the needle on the record, and it would yeah. be some dumb song that he would sing along with badly. You know, oh, what's, I never, you know, so some of him, I loved him on Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on uh, Taxi. Taxi, like Taxi, taxi I mean, yeah. 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 That was, it's almost like some mix of performance art and stand-up comedy, like he was trying to. He was definitely pushing the envelope at all times, but he did a great Elvis imitation as like an 11-year-old. Mm. It was unbelievable. Uh, I was curious too. I mean, Jim Carrey's performance in that movie—he was so, so good. Yeah. Oh my God, he was so good. <laughs> I always thought he got snubbed by the Oscars. He did. Year. He was yeah. an—he's an amazing actor, and I think he got scared of straight parts after that because uh, it wasn't received the way I thought it should have been his performance. Yeah, that's very surprising. He was so—I mean, if you look at Andy Kaufman raw footage and. Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, you could almost, you know, mistake one for the other. And he was that character while yeah. we were shooting it. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Working with, uh, because I know other people on the film, like Danny DeVito had known Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Was there a great sense for Milos Forman that, you know, he was taking like a lot of real life stories and using people's points of view and putting them into the movie in a way? I don't think that. I, I, I think he's pretty direct about what he's doing, his own yeah. project, you know. Do you also work on hair as well? Oh, yeah. Ah. That, was, <laughs> that was the most fun of anything. How much was looking at the Broadway musical part of making the movie, or was he looking at it from his own perspective? Own perspective, and he had a script that was written by Michael Weller, who was a playwright who was... Uh, I think he was claimed at the time. And personally, I never, some of the script I just didn't think worked, but there you go. The music was wonderful. Yeah. It was all arranged and conducted by, uh, not conducted, but um, supervised by Galt McDermott, who wrote it. Mm. And um, Twyla Tharp's choreography often did not take into account that it was going onto a camera or into a camera. Yeah which I felt was a bit of a problem. She's very idiosyncratic and very brilliant. But I just, yeah, you know, I could see the problems. However, there was some of the photography. Oh my God, the music, some of the dancing was so fabulous. But we, um, we cut too long on that film. It was like a, it was so much fun to shoot. It was so much fun to make the first cut. Everything was so great. And then we did damage, I thought. <laughs> Even I though it was uh, too long. It's but hard we to... tried everything all the time, yeah. and then suddenly it was in the theaters, you know? Yeah. But it wasn't like, we had better versions of things. Uh, 
Yeah, I think it's hard to adapt stage plays and stage musicals to film. I don't, I don't think, think it that always was translates. It. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Milosh has a couple rules which I love. One is no reshoots ever. Really? The movie is the movie that. Even if something is technically yeah. not working. Right, he wouldn't reshoot. Ah. Which was, in this case, unfortunate, I thought. And secondly, um, he never used special effects. There were no dissolves, even. No designs. Everything was a direct cut from one scene to another. Well, you can't always tell. Uh, I think there was a design or two in that film, I'm thinking. In, in the opening. Maybe not, no. In the Aquarius number. What no. was his uh, rationale behind working like that? Did he well, he just felt like you shoot the movie, yeah. you edit the movie, it's the movie. Uh. No tricks. <laughs> Did he have final cut on most uh, projects he worked on? Certainly, I think he did, yeah. even if it wasn't in the contract. He's a very powerful man, personally, and I can't imagine anybody <laughs> giving him any yeah. direction. And, and, you know, I think Hare also was United Artists, right. and Kukuznets was, and they were very non-interfering. They were an incredible studio. And they didn't, you know, occasionally they'd make suggestions if they saw the film while you were still cutting yeah. it. And that was the days but United Artists, Rocky, Network, Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, they so really left the yeah. filmmakers, all the Woody Allen movies, they, they let the filmmakers do what they wanted. It was remarkable, and they had great movies. Yeah. And then it was the Chimino movie. And that, and they sold the company, I think? It, the, it, yeah. it collapsed. Another director I want to talk about, he worked with quite a bit, is Danny DeVito. Yeah. Uh, War of the Roses, Matilda, uh, yeah. Duplex, but War of the Roses. So what was sort of the initial talks about that movie? Because the tone of it is so incredible to have such a dark comedy and, uh, you know, mixing it with this, you know, sort of some dramatic material that's heavy. So well, what yeah. Um, well, it was what it was, and, uh, you know, Danny's got a very dark, deep sense of humor. So he's always, there's always a, uh, you know, a joke in his eye or a, a amusement. Um, the first time I met him, uh, it wasn't the first time, but <clears throat> when, when, I, I had a meeting with Danny, and he started talking about a shot, and he said the shot starts, I think, in a fire, and it pulls back, and there's a Christmas tree, and then there's uh, a person, and then we go up through the chimney, and we go around to the roof, and we come around, and we go down into the street, and we see feet. I didn't know what the guy was talking about. I thought he was stoned. I think that was the uh, the introduction yes. to Michael Douglas and <laughs> Kathleen Turner. And there it was. Yeah. He did it. And in fact, the other great shot, which opens the movie, is the opening credits, I think, are over like a it's handkerchief. It's a handkerchief, yeah. And it pulls back. Yeah. So yeah. you had a very, there's such a creative visual style to that movie. Well, that's it. He's so creative visually. And the transitions in that film. Yeah, he's very visual. He thinks visually. He plans visually. He's always cooking in his brain, thinking about stuff like that. Was uh, the the way of using the uh, the conversation between Danny DeVito and that client um, was that always sort of the way to structure the film? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
and then also too the I mean was it ever sort of discussed like you know like I love the tone of the movie I think that's what makes it really unique but you know sort of pushing on certain dark comedic moments or pulling back to be more dramatic uh, was that ever? No, not among the creative team, which also yeah. inc- included Jim Brooks. Oh, yeah, he was one of the producers. And I think he, no, he, uh, Michael Lehman, I think, wrote the script. But M- Jim was very involved in the editing, yeah, around. I mean, he was great. For, uh, for a comedy, even like a dark comedy, is it ever um, sort of part of the practice to test it on an audience and see of course, how Of course, of course. Any movie, I think, should be previewed as much as I hate the process. You learn things yeah. that you need to know, and uh, it's an unfortunate thing, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to say uh, that Michael Douglas was so brilliant in that movie because yeah. he was such an asshole. <laughs> And he's not. He's a great, great guy. I mean, every time I see the film, I'm just amazed at how good he is in that film. Yeah. I thought he was great. It's just so great. I love the dynamic. You know, they're always trying to sort of one-up each other, you know, with the pets or, you know. Yeah, and we cut a lot of stuff out. (laughs) It was really fun. Um, And also the footage was great. Danny covers... Because he's a student of Milos. Yeah. He was in Cuckoo's Nest, and of course he's one of the, you know, one of the acolytes. Well, also I love the scene uh, visually where uh, Michael Douglas is in the hospital. I think at the beginning he has that heart attack. Yeah. And he's waiting with Danny DeVito in the hospital room, and I, I thought that was really lit visually. I think it's just yeah. another example of how, you know, visual of a director Danny DeVito is. He's very visual. So. Very visual. It's... It's always and, and dailies were like getting Christmas presents every day. <laughs> and in the because, final scene, oh, you know all the different shots and angles and yeah, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Uh, a favorite of mine is uh, "River Runs Through It." Yeah, Robert wasn't Redford. that nice? Yeah, I love. Uh, it's beautifully photographed. And, oh, uh, isn't it? It's Philip du, uh, Philippe Rousselot, mm-hmm. Philippe Rousselot, French. Every day. Oh my God, it was so gorgeous. <laughs> Hair was like that too. Yeah, I remember the opening shot of hair was really beautiful. Mm. It's off the bus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but for River Runs Through It, working with uh, voiceover, uh, do you find that to be a, a great tool for you to connect certain pieces? Or I don't mind it the way clarify? some people yeah. do, and that was always the intention. And that Robert Redford would be doing uh, the voiceover. Well, I sort of wished he hadn't, but we never found anybody as good as him. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. And he looks a lot like Brad Pitt, a little bit. Right, but the voice <laughs> is supposed to be the other brother. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. I got that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work out. So, But it's the most beautiful movie ever. Love Montana. Yeah. And I love the film. And you I think, think Redford is just an artist. Yeah, I think he's one of the, the best uh, directors out there. Very I think he is. Yeah. And I love what he chooses to do. He's really an artist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you feel like, I mean, some people think voiceover is a crutch. Do you feel like that it, it helps? Not necessarily. Up, Not necessarily. Yeah. No, I don't think necessarily. I thought also Matilda had to have voiceover. I wanted a woman to narrate it. <laughs> I thought Emma Thompson would be perfect, but Danny felt really strongly that it was a male voice. Uh. 
Emma Thompson's a good idea. I like her. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, another question I have, just sort of a general editing question, is about... Uh, in those, both those cases, voiceover was planned, but it's a tool you can use if the rest of the film doesn't work. Well, have you ever suggested... Yeah, I mean, we've had to do that on some things. I can't remember what right now. Uh, uh, well, this is sort of a general editing question, but, um, you know, people always say, you know, the screenplay is a page a minute, but that always doesn't really add up in a sense. Uh, do you always find no. that sort of looking at a screenplay Well, what's way funny is, uh, is you think, oh, it's a page, good. And then you look at two lines, there is a battle between the two sides, <laughs> or, and then they have a, a fist fight. Now, yeah. those things are going to take weeks. You know, that, those little lines are huge. The battles. To cover and, that from every possible way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, they just take forever. Yeah, no, screenplays have a vagueness to them that, uh, you know, there's a lot of gaps to be filled in by a director, by yeah. production, by everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes by the actor. Mm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we talked a but if the screenplay works, the film will work. If the screenplay doesn't work, it's very hard to make the film work. Uh, do you find that uh, people are always willing to spend the time to make the screenplay better? Not always, no, not always. Uh, I worked on a film where it was being rewritten as we were shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these things happen. Because uh, it's also a business, movies. That's true, every day is money. So. Um, I was going to say for Hoffa, that was David Mamet writing that. Who's, yeah. You know, considered one of the and Danny best wouldn't change a word of that. So that was very much uh, David Mamet on there. Now, the problem with Hoffa uh, is that no one knew who Hoffa was. We knew because we grew up with it. Yeah. But people of other generations didn't know, but we didn't have a preview. Uh, so that's the benefit of a preview where. Oh, help, so we uh, would have known immediately. Yeah. Who is Hoffa? What did he do for his guys? It wasn't clear in the film. For you, do previews always um, end up sort of, you know, opening doors to sort of how we Not necessarily, things, and sometimes, well? you know, it's always a question of interpretation, too. And unfortunately, most previews have a lot of executives. And uh, everybody's got an idea to yeah. fix something. And maybe that's not what's broken. Maybe it's what happened in the scene before or in the beginning of the scene. You know, they don't know how to think of that as a problem of the film. They, they'll suddenly fasten on something and have an ideas about it, and there's nothing wrong with that or that character. Yeah. It's things around Everything it. Everything connects in a way. Yeah, they, that you have to sort of figure out. It's more complex. And... Um, but I find them useful. You know, you get notes on something, and something's wrong. Yeah. Although uh, it's really scary and painful and awful <laughs> to sit through. Yeah, and then they fill out the, uh, the cards with they the surveys. They fill out the cards, and, and then they have this... Uh, uh, focus group. Focus group. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then we see the cards. And the, first, the first preview I went on, and they used to, used to go other cities. Like We went to Chicago and Boston on True Confessions. Oh, Lou Grossbard. Yeah. Lou Grossbard, uh, Bobby De Niro, Bobby Duvall. Yeah. Um, and 
It was my first preview. I didn't know anything. And I'm in Chicago, and the film's over, and someone turns around and looks at me and says, did you work on this film? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, you should be shot. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I thought, oh, it's great. They're going to love it. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, sometimes when they bring people sort of free off the street, they're, like, almost ready to kind of criticize. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. kind of an easy target yeah, for them. Yeah, it's fun to do. So uh, something apart. We talked a little bit before how you've, you've been a teacher, you've been a mentor to film students. What are some of the things that you try to impart to them as you're... Well, one thing I try and do is make sure, uh, let's see, every shot should be moving forward. Every cut should have a reason. Look at your dailies all the time because you're going to find stuff you missed last time because you're looking at different eyes. You're looking with different eyes because they're educated differently from what you've already worked done, the work yeah. you've done. Um, uh, well, those, let's see. And don't forget about sound. Don't have dropouts, that drives me crazy when you're working even, because it changes the rhythm. So make sure you don't do that. And I have a list, but I don't remember. <laughs> Let's see. Those are some good ones. But you know, the story is, everything should advance the story and think about what you're cutting. Sometimes they just cut, like, why did you make that cut? You're not getting any more information. The shot before wasn't finished uh, being useful, or this shot is completely dead. Nothing is really going on here except an actor is saying his lines in a very uh, unfeeling way. Yeah. You know, and performance, performance. Get those moments in there. I feel like something that uh, doesn't get talked about a lot, but if actors, I guess this is sort of a directorial thing, but if actors talk too slow and you don't have enough coverage to build around it, you sort of are trapped in a sense in terms of not being able to cut away, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, like you can... Like it kind of slows the pace down. And then it you're, could slow yeah. the pace down, but then, you know, you cut to who they're talking to slowly, yeah. and you speed it up. You take all those pauses out on the other person's close-up. That's why you cut. <laughs> <laughs> it's to make, you know... That's no, very true. 